The Hanga Tonga Hanga Haapai volcano sits 65 kilometres north of Tonga's largest island. Its eruption on Sunday, the 15th of January 2022, was the biggest ever measured by modern instruments and caused a 58 kilometre high ash plume and a Pacific wide tsunami. The eruption was also the loudest sound heard on Earth in 139 years since the Krakatoa eruption of 1883. The eruption sent a shockwave across the Pacific. The situation in Tonga remains unclear tonight, with the Pacific nation almost in a communication blackout following a volcanic eruption that triggered a tsunami. It's been almost 24 hours since connection was lost. But locals managed to get these pictures out before that. You can see huge waves inundating coastal areas strong enough to sweep away this car in the distance there. The extent of any injuries or damage is still unknown. The underwater volcano. In the weeks and months following the eruption, local and international actors converged to restore communications, providing urgent support to communities and beginning the recovery process. I'm Beth Eccleston, and this is I Think You're on Mute. This episode will explore the aftermath of the Tonga volcano and tsunami, the complex relationship between environmental impacts and humanitarian disasters. Satellite images show a thick layer of ash on the runway of Tonga's main airport. On the left is how it looked before the eruption. The ash is delaying deliveries of international aid flights. The ash is proving quite problematic, um, not just for uh, water and sanitation because Tonga collects its water from the roofs of households, um, but in terms of access for the aid from Australia and New Zealand um, and other flights, uh, they need to clear the runway. Communicating with Tonga is The volcanic eruption and the tsunami it caused resulted in a communications blackout in Tonga. The scale of the emergency wasn't known for several days and up to several weeks in some areas. Once the surge response did begin, it brought with it emergency supplies, but it also brought COVID-19. This rendered the situation even more challenging for local responders and communities. Here's Stephen Jedgitz from ABC. We really don't know, Beverly, exactly where these cases have, have come from. Of course, the immediate suspicion has fallen, perhaps understandably, on the flotilla, almost of ships that have come in from a, a number of countries, including Australia, New Zealand, China, uh, France, the UK, uh, Japan, to, uh, to provide very welcome aid to Tonga in the wake of that terrible eruption, uh, volcano, volcanic uh, eruption and tsunami in January. That aid, of course, was really badly needed, but Tonga has always been anxious about the chance of those supply ships bringing in aid, also bringing in COVID. This was always the great fear for a nation which, despite the fact it's quite highly vaccinated, was really worried about the impact that the uh, disease, in particular the Omicron strain, could have on its health system. Now that fear... In the midst of all these intersecting challenges, it would be easy to forget the environmental impact of the humanitarian response itself. However, environmental impacts are an essential consideration anywhere, but especially in the Pacific Islands. I spoke to Sesamani Lukatui, National Coordinator at the Civil Society Forum of Tonga, about the aftermath of the volcano. I think we had initially tried to carry on 
as normal as we possibly can. And I say that with the full understanding, no one in Tonga has ever experienced a volcano eruption before. No one has. And so immediately after the morning, the next day of the after, so January 16th was a Sunday. And because we're a very religious country, Sunday is taboo. I guess the best everyone could do is try and go back, like say for me, for example, we live right next to the coast and we did experience the tsunami. So we left, we had fled our homes. We did not come back at that night. Most of us had returned back early Sunday morning and it was just a prayer of thanks. And whatever small cleanup we can do because it was a Sunday, that's it. The full, the full cleanup that everyone had, had done, we had pretty much responded to it as if it was another tropical cyclone. We assessed the damages in our own homes and proceeded to clean up as best we could. Mindful that ashfall is something that we do not see yearly or had ever seen. So that was that was a first for everyone. So, you know, there were many questions. Is the ash safe? Can what can we do to um get rid of it? Because it was just everywhere. I mean, this, you know, what you know, scientists told us after the the that eruption that that was the largest explosion, you know, recorded since the, the Krakatoa ex explosion in Indonesia, you know, some, you know, decades and decades ago. It was absolutely catastrophic. Organisations like the, the Civil Society Forum of Tonga were so critical, those local responders. And I guess I was wanting to see if you could describe a bit around, um, you know, what the response was like from local actors um, like the forum. I, I think it was a good thing there was a communication blackout. Because otherwise we would have, you know, with with the whole world up in an uproar, that would have really overwhelmed us here on the island. With the communication blackout, it allowed us to not feel because we we were traumatized. We still are trying to deal with the with that trauma. Some of us don't talk about it, but that secluded period of time allowed us to deal with it, like I had previously mentioned as if it was just a normal uh, occurrence. Eh? We did not think of it as such a big deal and tried not to make it a big deal so that it would scare us or, because some kids would, would not leave the house or, and so forth, because of you'd hear a large bang a vehicle on the road and the kids are already running. I think the first thing that civil society had tried to do is to make sure that the people who had lost shelters had somewhere to go and it was safe. That the young mothers and children, or especially the kids with disabilities, they had everything that they needed, especially if they had lost their shelter as well. So food, while as food and shelter was a priority, so for everyone to step up and pull together and move together as a unit, I guess that was the one thing that made the response by civil society, by Red Cross, by Tonga National Youth Congress, Family Health had, was there, the service providers for gender, including the Tonga Ladies Association, uh, women's crisis centers, they had all moved together at the same time, but the coordination 
around that was really something because that that wasn't done before. And if it it had been, you know, there are several attempts at doing this, at coordinating the responses during natural disasters, but nothing was done at a level as which the responses towards the hunga tonga hunga hapai response was done. Because immediately while with, with them standing up together, there was one channel of communication to everyone we knew, whether it be Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, everywhere around the world, every, of, every single one of those responses come through that one channel and all aid was divvied up between everyone, making sure that everyone was accounted for. And I guess that that is the, the best learning or best lesson, the only outcome worth mentioning. <laughs> I'm so glad you spoke about that coordination hub because I was I was you know hearing you know about that through various channels um, and like I say you just mentioned this it's quite a perhaps a new initiative or something that people would have liked to see in other responses and so I actually am really interested to know because that was such a positive experience the way in which that coordination worked do you think that that's something that you know maybe replicated in future emergencies. Yes, so that is the feedback we're getting from everyone, is that this is how we would like to respond to future emergencies, just so that we do not duplicate and not only duplicate, but there's a lot of resources coming in that we can deliver these resources correctly in the right manner and make sure that every single one of the affected community gets it in a prompt time. I suppose some of the research that the Civil Society Forum of Tonga and and Morty led on, which was looking in particular at the environmental aspects of the response and, you know, positive learnings that came out of that. Um, So we understand that Tonga is currently working on, on a framework or guidance on reducing the environmental impacts of an emergency response. What kind of impacts are you hoping that that kind of guidance uh, can deliver? I think the main impact that I'm hoping that this guidance would provide is leaving or minimizing our carbon footprint for all of the responses in future emergencies and not just one particular aspect. I mean, I know natural disasters hit and we expect our cyclone season this year to roll through with something new, but other emergencies occur too, like COVID-19. Um, those health emergencies, they also leave a massive carbon footprint. And I totally understand because of the way Tonga is situated <laughs> geographically. We are a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And for things to get here, it will cost in terms of carbon. But there are things here that we can, I guess I'm looking for for this guidance to provide innovation in terms of response. The Cash for Crop initiative where we took, we quickly helped communities, affected farmers in the communities, you know, harvest their crops and delivered the same crops to those who really needed that crop for food. So that's an innovation idea where you do not need to deliver food directly to our doorstep all the way from Australia even. Firstly, it's the carbon footprint to be minimized. Secondly, it's the single-use plastic waste that in terms of packaging the response or the aid towards 
that is coming in, like the single-use plastic waters that bottles that they had chipped in for hunga tonga hunga hapai. That that's a lot. It, it was a lot of plastic, and still is a lot of plastic. All of the packaging that came through with the COVID nineteen aid in terms of the medical supplies, the single use mask that they had brought in, that ends up in the ocean. But once those single use packaging has been used up or they have served their purpose, there's nowhere for it to go here in the middle of the Pacific but the ocean, and we live off the ocean. That's our main. That's our main livelihood. That is how we get by on the daily is from the ocean. And that's the guide, that's the impact I'm hoping that this guidance will have is firstly, minimize the carbon footprint and response. And secondly, deal with the waste um, management issues surrounding the responses. In the aftermath of the Tonga eruption and tsunami, water supplies were contaminated by volcanic ash and salt water. It became critical for organisations to provide access to safe drinking water, and this arrived in plastic bottles and containers. Amidst the influx of large amounts of plastic waste, local NGO Mori Tonga provided sustainable water supplies in the wake of the disaster. I spoke with Suwani Potolo from Mori about their work to green the humanitarian system. To be honest, the number of plastic bottles that came in, um, I'm not really sure about the numbers uh, itself, but I can tell you it was a lot. It was a lot um, of plastic bottles, I mean, with water. Um, actually, during that time, uh, yes, definitely, that was, that's what the community really needed. So drinking water. I, I think uh, if we step back a little bit, that there's been a lot of effort, especially by our government, um, to have drinking water in place. And there were, I mean, uh, many years now, the government have been trying to get every household having access to a water tank. But with um, the eruption, it was a bit totally different. We didn't foresee that. So straight after the eruption, the first advice from the government, especially with the Ministry of Health, uh, not to drink the water until it get tested. And that's when I think we had we ran into the issue of, um, you know, getting a lot of um, water bottle, um to the community itself. <clears throat> With ourselves, um, we, we always considered um, environment as something important when we do our development work, but also during humanitarian work. Um, I, I know it was a it was a bit expensive exercise to do that, uh, especially with ourselves. Uh, we what we did uh, we make um, an arrangement with one of the drinking water supplies uh, businesses here to provide us with forty liters water bottle. But those are the recycled one that we can distribute and then go pick it up and then do it again over and over again. Um, however, that wasn't enough to, to satisfy the needs because it, it, it took a while for you know for us to keep going back and, and forth with the community. So that, that was our, our response when it comes to drinking water. And, and we were also fortunate during this time um, that New Zealand and Australia had an army boat here. So they were also supplying water. Uh, I think they did the desalinations and then we we set up a, a water station in some of our communities using 5,000 litre water tanks. And then we transport uh, and distribute uh, those water stations so community can come and get, get their water from, from them. Yeah. And really, the water piece is only just part of the story, isn't it, Swani? I mean, you're involved in e- even a broader part of the response. So what other initiatives did you see being implemented that helped this concept of a, a green humanitarian response? 
And what would you have liked to have seen more of during that response? I mean, with with um, the response and recovery, our, our biggest uh, area of focus is usually um, food security and livelihood. Uh, and that's something that we have been doing even in our development work. That's um, mainly our focus. Planting trees is all, always something that we love. And we love to do it during uh, good weather. But when there's a bad weather, it's always an opportunity. And we always love it. I mean, we, we don't like cyclone, but then we don't like disaster. But when it happens, uh, it makes us very happy because that's an opportunity for us to to do um, more tree planting uh, with the community apart from from the crops and stuff. I think if we want to prepare and and make sure that we're more resilient and more environmental friendly next time, I think we should give a a bit of support. Government should consider and maybe donors should also um, consider supporting the local water companies here that providing, including the one that we're getting our water pool from, building capacity. So when it happens again, then we can maybe tap into them rather than bringing water from outside. I mean, to be honest, uh, yes, of course, it was what we really needed that time, uh, drinking water, but the water that came from outside, the plastic was not only the issue. The other issue is where some of our local companies uh, nearly collapse. Uh, if it continue on for more than a few other, for a few more months, I'm sure they will uh, they'll run out of business because people will stop buying their water because they got free water coming from from another source. So there's a there's a lot of other angle we could look into, not only environment but also you know economic side things. Uh, the other one I think um, it's I mean building the capacity of the of the community itself to respond and and also react uh, to such kind of um, disaster. Um, with the outer islands, uh, one of the the closest island to, to the main island of Tongatapu, we have to supply them with water every two days um, because of the volume that I can take on my boat or one and, and, and also go back and, and get the empty bottles. You know, maybe having uh, desalination um, stations within those communities um, to help them, you know, produce their own water rather than us have to run from here if there's another eruptions and maybe maybe that's another one it's just to strengthen the local um, capacity um, to do that evidence gathered from humanitarian responses make it increasingly apparent that humanitarian action itself is damaging the climate and natural environment similar to the Tonga eruption the 2005 earthquake in Pakistan had an initial degradation of water sources and land The humanitarian response and use of short-term shelter materials contributed to a large accumulation of waste from the response and recovery efforts. Zaki Ullah from Glow Consulting in Pakistan knows the humanitarian sector in the country better than most. Many of the uh, humanitarian organisations, if you speak to them, they will argue that maybe in the uh, aftermath of any disaster, reaching out to more people is a priority rather than thinking about whether our interventions are having any environmental uh, impact. Now, it sounds logical when you think of it, but I mean, the counter argument would be that yes, once the disaster is there and you are responding, maybe you don't really have that much time to think of your interventions to how to make them environmental friendly. But what, what about like, I mean, thinking about your interventions before the disaster hits. You have all, we have all this opportunity because definitely like, I mean, like taking the example of Pakistan, 
we are facing those like uh, natural disasters or man-made disaster for, 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 for so long. And we have seen large-scale disasters as well. Like, I mean, smaller-scale disasters, localized disasters, pretty much every year, every second year, we see them and the organization then respond to them. But even on the large scale, we have those Afghan refugees coming into Pakistan, millions of them uh, in 80s and then in the 90s, some, uh, uh, some as well. Then in 2005, we have a big, big scale, uh, I mean, uh, earthquake. 2005, we refer uh, to that event. Then in 2010, we have that super flood events, a mega big, big flood event. Then a large number, again, millions displacement of the individuals uh, from uh, that border, bordering area with Afghanistan. So the humanitarian organization has to provide them assistance again. Now, and as we speak, we are uh, seeing this large scale flood Event, uh, uh, as we speak. Now, so we know as a humanitarian actors that what are our interventions when these disaster happens. Uh, so why can't we do? We think about those uh, those interventions before before beforehand, so that we can then not only reach out to more people, more beneficiaries, more affectees, but also our our interventions are kind of environmental friendly. For example. Let's say in, in the last all those events that I just mentioned, I think the immediate response after the rescue or even the rescue and the response was going hand in hand for some, some time. We have seen the distribution or provision of large scale, those plastic water bottles. Yeah, so we know if disaster hits, that's the, one of the reaction or one of the response the humanitarian organization provides. So it's a use of a big scale of plastic bottles. Second thing is that the use of plastic for those makeshift sort of uh, toilets when we construct them after immediate emergency, when we are providing, we are going through this relief phase in particular. And I'm actually taking this argument or the, the, the scenario that built in, it's more on the response, immediate response, where like the humanitarian organization have this argument that may be reaching out to more people than thinking about the environment, because in recovery and rehabilitation, then you have more uh, space to think about your interventions. So why, so if we already know that in any sort of disaster, then we have to provide some sort of that plastic for uh, maybe makeshift sort of shelter or for the toilets. So why don't we already invest some time, some research in it, and we come up with that material that, okay, we're going to use this material, which is more environmental friendly for the, in, in, in the future. Thank you, Zaki. I really like what you were saying about the planning piece. So when you were talking about that we need to do some more thinking, planning, and perhaps some more research. And, and I also like how you were saying people say, we just need to respond. We need to save lives. We don't have time to think about the environment. And what is interesting is I think of areas of humanitarian response like gender, inclusion, um, ensuring that people living with a disability are included, uh, looking at protection concerns. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, people used to often say the same thing. I don't have time to consider gender. I'm trying to save lives. So I would like to think that environmental concerns are now going to be, you know, something that are considered, that they are considered in advance. So I guess I'd love to ask you, how do, how do you think we build more environmental planning into humanitarian response in, in advance? First of all, lesson learned. As I said, even given, giving the example only from uh, Pakistan, I have counted like 
three, four major disasters where large scale military response went in the last maybe 15 years. So as you said that maybe 10 years back, 15 years back, the discussion pretty much of the how I, we don't have time to look into the gender or protection in our intervention. Such. But I think on that aspect, now we have come a long way, or at least we made progress. I think the similar sort of situation is now for environment. I think we are discussing it more, but we need to make it more into that planning. And how it can be done, so lesson learned. We do a lot of lesson learning, and pretty much all those major or big organizations, media organizations, sit down and do some sort of lesson learned after the, uh, the, the past event. But the issue is, one is like lesson sort of noted, or identified, one is like lesson learned. Actually, you incorporate that lesson in your future interventions. You make sure it didn't like, don't happen in the next time. Like what I have learned, I have learned it, but I will not uh, make it happen again. I will have some mitigation measures included in my intervention. The other ones are just like lessons you know now that, okay, yes, this thing happened, this should have happened. Not in this way, but we don't incorporate that lesson in our future uh, interventions. So you have the same lesson again when you do. <laughs> so I, so what is this? I think as a, as 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 an organization, immediate organization, we should not only note down those lessons when we do those lessons learned, but we actually need to do something. The men say that one day that lagoon will devour you. They say it will gnaw at the shoreline, chew at the roots of your breadfruit trees, gulp down rows of sea walls, and crunch through your island's shattered bones. They say you, your daughter, and your granddaughter too, will wander rootless with only a passport to call home. We all remember that moving address by Marshallese poet Kathy Gentnell Killinger. And we remember the many other moments we were moved and called to action by impassioned pleas of Pacific Island leaders. However, high-level policy and rhetoric has not always translated into environmental action, especially not in the humanitarian sector. Accountability to affected communities has been a major challenge for the international humanitarian community for decades. The tide is changing, but achieving true accountability has proven difficult Piango Siale, from episode two, spoke to me about the outlook for the Pacific. The more I talk about it, uh, Beth, and the more I observed and, and experience and see how the work that we do in, in Piango, it really speaks to the kind of hierarchy system that we had in our region because of the different, uh, you know, like Tonga, for example, where we have still have the monarchy, uh, in Fiji, we still have the nobility, the you know chiefly uh, system, uh, as well as Vanuatu, Solomon Islands too, in their own way. And, and so, when it comes to accountability to affected communities, uh, you need to understand those different layers, yeah? because there are. When it comes to accountability in our Pacific, we are always like to be seen accountable upwards. Yeah, we are accountable to our leaders, we are accountable to our chief system, we are accountable to our churches, uh, our leaders, uh, and we are comfortable We are comfortable with that. That's, that's, our, uh, that's how we had been brought up. We're born to that kind of system. Uh, and so the more that you talk about transformational structure and system, 
then you started to realize that we need to shift. We need to be recognizing that that those that are mostly affected should be the one that we pay our attention to. Yeah? And, and not just that, but it does mean that it's those people need to be part and parcel of the decision-making. You need to hear their voices. You need to bring them to make find the solutions for the response that we need to have. And so we start with a very simple simple steps because this uh, is huge. When we talk about accountability, it's huge. Uh, and this is why I love about the work that we do with HAG because we have we had managed to incorporate that into our work. And, uh, and we started simply by, you know, having our peer review of our research, for example. We engage those that we interview. Yeah? And then when we finish the, everything and it's published, uh, we then do a launch. We go back to where those people are placed and we do the launch. Through the launch, we are then explaining to them, this is what you say, this is how it's being framed, this is how it's being organized in the report, uh, and this is how you can use that uh, to advance your interest and use that as your voice, as a structured voice to, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to tell your story. You don't have to explain yourself. You, you, cannot, you cannot even say a thing. You can just turn up, knock at the door, and when they open you, just like, here, just give them the report and you run away and hide before they give you a, <laughs> before they contradict you all the points that you made. Giving them tools to continue to advance their, uh, their interests and their uh, the issue, that they, their struggle that they face every day. And do we do that in different, different level? But that's, that's the simplest thing that I, that I uh, always uh, appreciate the work that we do in that sense, is how we will continue to, because if we are not careful, uh, research can become an extracting exercise. You know, we go in and then we just like get their ideas and then we come and put it in a nice uh, way of doing it. And then before, you know, we, we then continue to use those uh, knowledge to our advantage. But what happened then, because uh, one of the things that in our Pacific that we always recognize, Beth, is that you go in, you interview people, you turn your back to go and uh, complete the work you do, their expectation is already on your head. You are taking them because the, the, their stories and everything they're telling you, they're not, we, although we have explained to them, this is just a research, this is just a scoping, yeah? You, you may not have any project or any money or anything in return for this, but that doesn't mean that they, that they had not given you the consent of their information with their expectation that you would do something about it and there will be benefit coming to them either by other people recognizing themselves or themselves using this to advance their voices in their struggle. And I think what you just said about the structure of you know, particular societies and the, the upwards facing accountability, it's, it's reflected, isn't it, in, in the way the international humanitarian system works. We have accountability donors and other contract or implementing partner kind of relationships rather than 
um, you know, accountability to those who we seek to serve. So it's so true. And I guess my last question is how, what are some of those barriers though, some of the research that we have generated together, you know, pulls together some key findings and has highlighted how important that, um, that grassroots accountability is. In your view, yeah, what could be done to advance that? I think you and me, Beth, we need to kind of deep dive into making sure that what comes out from those uh, uh, research, that there are investments to follow. Yeah? It, it's, it's, we, are, we are up to a point where I think that we have done this long, long enough to realize that, uh, and, and it, it can goes back to what we had just talked about, our accountability to uh, affected communities, speaks to how much that we need to also recognize it's, it's just not enough when you get to know what they say or get to know what, or tell their story or put their story out there uh, without us finding something that could invest into our knowledge and our learning that comes out from this process. So that we are giving it to them and said, okay, you have identified your, your issue. You have identified your, your uh, sense of solutions. This is probably a good uh, enough financial support to get you started and find your way by navigating. That's one way. The other way is, is continue uh, to the betterment of how we are doing our approach. Because the, the interesting thing that I find about the way that we do things is that we are, we are giving to the young people of a community the opportunity to go out and collect the data. Yeah? And through doing that, first, they get to understand the, the issue. Second, they, they get to understand where they are positioned in the whole issue that they are facing. And so it's, it's not just the data being collected, but it's also giving the, those young people within their community the sense of, 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 of the seriousness of that. So, so it's starting to build that whole ownership of, of the process itself. And I have seen our communities taking the, the, the data and the outcome of, our, of some of our surveys and use that to advance the, yeah, use that as an advocacy tools to advance the, or even just started a conversation uh, with the things that we had, yeah. I have seen this with, the, with our baseline uh, research on, uh, on, on uh, you know, the four countries, Solomon Islands, uh, Fiji, uh, Tonga, and, uh, and uh, Vanuatu. Now our team here in uh, Fiji Council of Services, Social Services have taken the regional approach that we, and, and do it in, in their own context, contextualize it uh, in what does localization means. Yeah? And, and so uh, at different level, I think that's the, uh, that's the uh, I would say the high end uh, is to look for resources to input into the, the research that we have done, the things that, so, so that they could, you know, give them opportunity to put their idea of a solution into a reality. But other than that, they, we have seen them develop the outcome of some of the, service, the survey that we have done into much deeper policy knowledge that is being used as a, as a position paper, for example, into some of the work that they do, um, which, which is a, a, a small step. 
but it's going towards uh, the right direction, I think. This brings us to the end of our four-part series. We've looked at why the humanitarian system is broken, accountability to local actors, censoring and elevating local voices and greening the system. We hope you've enjoyed this journey with us. We've linked all the research referenced in this series in the show notes of each episode. We'll be back next year with more podcast episodes, but don't be a stranger. Connect with us on our socials, linked in the show notes, and be a part of the conversation. More importantly, let's stay mindful of which voices might be on mute in our conversations. Trust me, it's better when everyone can use their microphone. I'm Beth Eggleston, and this has been I Think You're on Mute.